Hey, welcome to Inside the Album. I'm Don Seckler. That's Tommy Hilkin. How's it going, Tom? Don, real good. Good to be with you, as always. Cool. Welcome, 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 everybody. Thank you to everybody who's been listening and watching us on YouTube and listening on Apple and Spotify and everywhere else. Nice. Uh, we just want to remind you what we do here inside the album is we pick a different album every week and we do a deep dive into the recording of that album, talk about all the stories of what was happening in the studio and the songs and how they came together mm -hmm. and just really kind of get in and learn about uh, some of our favorite albums of all time. So if you can, please help out, subscribe us. We really, really, really could would appreciate uh, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So that's the one place where you can go and give a great review for us. That would really help us out. We really appreciate it. Sure would. And uh, check out insidethealbum.com. That's our website. You can see all of the episodes from the beginning all the way up until now. Big exciting news. Our charity is really kind of gaining some traction and we're working hey. with this charity to help bring music to the world. Ah. So tell us all about it, Tom. What are we doing? Don, uh, awesome stuff. And I'm just so glad that we have watchers and listeners. So watchers could be scary, <laughs> but I'm okay with it. So, our foundation, Music for Mark, is really the premise about why we're doing this. So, you know, we can raise the awareness of people of what we're doing. Music for Mark, we're bringing music lessons and we're bringing musical instruments to kids of the world. You know, music, it means so much to you and I. That's why we're doing this, you know, inside the album, everything about it. But really, it's about leading people to understand that we want to bring music to the world. You know, through kids, it's the only way to go. Let them get some lessons. You know, we're going to supply some instruments. We now have a guitar. We have, a, like I told you, one of my favorite things, someone donated a trombone. I can't say that enough. It's the first <laughs> time anybody's ever contributed a trombone. And uh, so, you know, this is what we want to do. This is why we're doing this, to raise the awareness. Musicformark.com. Help us bring music to kids who are going to bring it to the world. Yes. And it's time, Tommy, for the new feature, which is the Inside the Album shout out. This is a surprise to me. It better be somebody important. Oh, it is. This week's shout out goes out to our most recent donator, Cliff oh. Barone. We love this guy. Yeah. Cliff is such a great guy. We know him locally here from business. I've actually jammed with him at the, you know, we get our guitars and go play at a studio. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, so just want to give a big, big shout out to Cliff Barone, who donated a guitar to us last week uh, and is super exciting. So, you know, thank you, Cliff. We appreciate your viewership and listenership and uh, happy to have you along for the ride. So big shout out to Cliff Barone. Don, I got to ask you a question. Did you mention Cliff Barone? I think I did. All it's right. Cliff Barone. Cliff, Cliff Barone. Thank you, Cliff. <laughs> You're the best, man. He is awesome. All right. Let's so let's dive into it. Today we are uh, talking about Led Zeppelin. And we're gonna start off with what is probably everybody's favorite Led Zeppelin album. It's Led Zeppelin 4. Mm-hmm. Technically, it's an untitled album. So, uh, you know, we're going to get into a lot of this, uh, why that happened and what was going on with this. Some people know it as Zoso, which, uh, it, you know, people say it, but it's not 
technically correct. So we'll, we'll talk about the details of how this all came together and, and what those symbols on the album mean and, and all these sort of things. Uh, oh but we're first we're going to dive in, Tom, and talk about the members of this band. And I'm sure Let's do it. 99% of our audience knows <laughs> every one of these guys. It's uh, the iconic, and you know, these guys are all iconic. It, Robert Plant on vocals, you know, by far top 10 easily uh, front men of all time, right? Yeah. Are you there? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Please rephrase that as a question. I thought it was a statement. Oh, yeah. Talk about front men. Listen, the whole band, right? One, yeah, everybody in the band. I got yeah. it. Go iconic ahead. right okay so jimmy page on guitar uh you know again iconic great 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 guitar player has a lot of background in doing studio work and playing with other musicians so the oh, thing yeah. about these guys is the technical ability of of these players even though they're playing hard rock heavy metal the technical ability of them is through the roof You've got John Paul Jones on bass, who also played a lot of keyboards and had a, a big a big hand in writing some of the major hits for Led Zeppelin. And I'm not sure how many people realize that, but John Paul Jones, big influential part of the band as well, not just the bass player. And then the legendary John Bonham on drums. And, you know, this is a guy that you hear people like Dave Grohl and, you know, other drummers refer to as the greatest rock and roll drummer of all time. So, what about it? you know, just a powerhouse lineup of super, super talented musicians. A great career, although rather short. I think it was about 12 years or so that they they were together and they broke up when when uh, Bonham died in, in 1980. But this album, Led Zeppelin IV, obviously their fourth album, was released in November, on November 8th, 1971. So it's mm. the very you know, still kind of the end of the 60s, even though it's 1971 and kind of we're moving out of the the hippie days and, and the jam rock days and into that 70s period where things are starting to change a little bit in music. Mm. At the time on the charts, and this is interesting, it was pretty mellow. The charts were very mellow in like the end of 71, early 70 or 72. Yep. So you had Harvest by Neil Young, which was a huge album at the time. Yeah. Tapestry by Carole King, another really, really super popular, not really a rock album, but still a dominant album on the chart yeah. and in, in the pop landscape. Uh, you had Mad Men Across the Water by Elton John. Again, a rock record, but, you know, Elton John a little bit more middle of the road. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing that was interesting that was out there that was kind of heavy at the time was Killer by Alice Cooper. So, you know, for the most part, it was a pretty mellow year for music in terms of, of you know, is it rock or is it kind of laid back stuff? Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it, right? Yeah. Uh, the first thing you think when you said 1971, first place I went, Neil Young. Yeah, yeah it was right. Like so well, popular. yeah. And Neil was this Neil was really picking up, uh, you know, popularity at this time with a couple of big records. Huge. So uh, regarding this album, Led Zeppelin 4, it's Led Zeppelin's best selling album by far. Uh, 37 million copies sold. Mm. It was number 58 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Wow. And it is tied for the sixth highest selling album in the United States 
and that's uh, as of I think the uh, like last year. So it's still a really really big selling album. You know what's interesting is that there's 57 albums that somebody put in front of this. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Well, sometimes, you know, I don't always agree with those Rolling Stone lists, you know. They always pop Yoko Ono up in there. <laughs> yeah, but what you think about when we go through it, the whole total album, when we're talking about an album, not just a song off an album, you know, this album right. itself, you know, you'll see as we go through it. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the, it, this is one of those albums where, Every song is just amazing and and pretty much iconic and legendary. There's oh, yeah. no there's no dogs on this album. There's nothing, you know, if you put this on, you're not getting up, you're not walking away, you're going to listen to the whole thing. It's that good. Yeah. And the number one song overall in every group, you know, there is a vote is on this album. You know? Oh yeah. Right. You're right? talking so, about song that's considered the greatest rock song of all time, of by, all time. by a lot of people, yeah. Right. So the song is number 1, the album 58 yeah <laughs> interesting yeah so again obviously it's their fourth album uh because they had led zeppelin led zeppelin one led zeppelin two led zeppelin three led zeppelin four so the band uh at this time was at their peak i mean they were they had success right off the bat really with led zeppelin one were very popular they were touring doing huge arena tours and and just cranking out album after album of great great music so we look at the cover and again, I, you know, another iconic cover here. So there's this painting on the front of it uh, and we'll show it uh, on the video. So if you're listening, you can see this, what we're showing here on YouTube, if you check that out. Uh, but there's a 19th century rustic oil painting on the front of the album. And it was something that Robert Plant actually purchased in an antique shop in England. Mm. So they then took that painting uh, from the 19th century, and they juxtaposed it with a uh, demolished, kind of partly demolished suburban house. So the wall that's behind it is of like a broken down house. And that's where the, they took this photograph. So a little bit of contrast. And on the back of the album, you'll see, uh, you know, pictures of, of London and there's a, an apartment building and things like that. And then on the inside of the album, there's this really kind of cool wizard drawing. And it's, you know, plant, plant, uh, plant, bleh, plant and page. <laughs> Robert uh, Plant, yeah. Robert <laughs> Plant was super into the like the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and all all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of that. You hear a lot of that kind of stuff sometimes in in some of these songs and sure. and sometimes they use it in their imagery on the album. Yeah, you know the album covers back in the day, like we always say, some of the best art you'll ever see. You know, stuff that you have to figure out. I loved even the sleeves, you know, you miss, you miss everything that came along with albums. Yeah. So uh, the other thing was that uh, Jimmy Page said that it was the whole intent was to bring out that country city kind of dichotomy. So they kind of brought that up a little bit in Led Zeppelin three. And then, you know, this on Led Zeppelin four, they kind of reinforced that. And his attitude was that it, you know, it's kind of a, a conservation thing that people should kind of take care of the earth and, you know, make sure that you're continue to have a, a great place to live going forward. I wonder if that kicked in any, <laughs> <laughs> not really. <laughs> 50 years later <laughs> yeah so you know Think they said that i know right it's still nothing years. changes right yeah well, and that's right it's it's 50 years from this album yeah 50 years man wow yeah Crazy. jimmy page had been thinking that uh instead of a title 
they were going to have each member choose a symbol like a personal emblem for them for the cover mm. and so initially they were they were starting to think of a single symbol and then they decided okay let's pick four everybody's going to pick their own symbol and and you know figure out you know or they'll use those symbols as the kind of the title for the album so that's why you have the zoso and and these other symbols that we're sh we'll show here and you can see them they're actually on the label of the record so I wanted to talk about them a little bit. And uh, the, the page one is the one that's Zoso. Uh, allegedly, it's a, a symbol from the 1500s that represented Saturn. But Jimmy Page said it's not actually a word at all. So it's to say it's Zoso is, is technically <laughs> not correct. Right, right. J John Paul Jones took a symbol from Rudolf Koch's Book of Signs. It's a single circle with uh, these three uh, pieces that intersect. And so that also shows, it symbolizes a person who has confidence and competence. Wow. John Bonham has three interlocking rings as his symbol, which just happened to be the symbol for Ballantine beer. <laughs> So, you know, maybe that's the meaning for Bonzo. <laughs> Point taken. Valentine. There's a blast from the past. Wow. And then plant symbol is a, a circle with a feather in the center and allegedly supposed to re represent the Mu civilization, M-U. I, I have no idea what that is. I didn't dive into the, the deep <laughs> inner meanings of that. Uh, I, remember the, I remember the Moos from... Uh... Well, <laughs> Revenge of the Nerds, that's as far as I <laughs> The moose, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's also one additional symbol, and this doesn't appear on the record, but on the inside sleeve, uh, it's kind of used as an asterisk. It's three upside-down triangles, and we'll, we'll show it here on the video again. Um, but this symbol was chosen by the woman who is the only female vocalist on the record. And Zeppelin never used a, a female vocalist before. Mm. Um, she's on the Battle of Evermore. And we'll talk a little bit more about when we get into that. Everybody, I'm sure everybody's very familiar with that, uh, that vocal. When they hear it, they'll, they'll understand, you know, it is a woman, obviously. So <laughs> she, she got her own symbol. And so... Uh. So these symbols are all over the album and, you know, technically the album is untitled. It's been called a million different things. Interesting thing, when the record was first released, there was no catalog number on it, which is weird because every record ever released by a record company has a catalog number because that's how they reference it in all their computers and systems and everything to mm. produce the records. So they, you know, they, so they totally kind of went against uh, convention here and basically did whatever they want because they were Led Zeppelin and they were that big and they, you know, whatever the, whatever they gave the record company, the record company was fine with it because these guys were that, that good and that popular at the time. No doubt. And next time we get together, I want a symbol. Okay. <laughs> I'll get you one. <laughs> Please. Next recording. I want to be called by my symbol. <laughs> I love that. Tommy Hilkin, the new prince. You, you know, <laughs> formerly known as Tommy Hilkin. <laughs> and what does your shirt say? I can only see the leave me. It says, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's so weird because you're a pretty social guy, but maybe yeah. that's an act. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little grumpy right now. So, uh, 
<laughs> Old man days. Yeah, you go get it off my lawn. <laughs> All right, Grandpa, let's dive into <laughs> the uh, record here. We're going to start off with uh, Black Dog, the uh, opener. Here we go. Hey, let me kill some time. Can I introduce, interject here, Don? Sure. If you don't mind, so we don't have dead air. Uh, <laughs> That's what editing's for. <laughs> yeah, thank you, God. Thank you, God. But uh, I have to tell you, you'll love this. You know how I owned this album the first time I ever had it? No. A-Track. Oh, nice. Wow. Nice. I had Zep 4 on A-Track, my friend. Come yeah, on my, my first one was a, was a, was vinyl. I was, hey. I never got into the A-Track. So I guess a little before my time, my Just parents a little... had a lot of them, but I yeah. wasn't driving at the time. So I didn't have, you right. know. Even the cars had A-Track players. Yeah. It was like a big deal. But they came yeah. and went. All right. So let me ask you a question. Did the eight track cut off in the middle of any song to click Always. over to the next track? Yeah. Yeah. If you are, if, yeah. Oh, it, they didn't. They were the care. worst. It, it was, it literally, it's just you click it. You had to click it over. Right. It was like all the yeah. time. They, they'd split songs all the time. In the middle what? of the song, the middle of Stairway to Heaven, and it would go over to track two. For, you know, just have a gap, it was. like yeah. 15 second gap. Right. But I remember my brother had a Chevy Monte Carlo with an eight track player in it. It was the greatest. Yeah. You have to have a big suitcase of eight tracks that you carry around with you. <laughs> literally. Literally. Yeah. Bring- I'm not even joking. It was literally like a suit. It was like a big briefcase of you could put your eight tracks in. And That's later they had the same thing for cassettes. Something we'll talk about. I wonder how long they really lasted eight tracks. Not too long. No, no. That was an awful. It was the worst technology, I think, for music. But All right. All right, so let's take a listen. Here's Black Dog. No. <laughs> Yay! There it is. There it is. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. So this song, Black Dog, which, uh, you know, again, I think we're in an album here where everybody knows pretty much every one of these songs. But this song, there's no Black Dog never appears in the lyrics at all, has nothing to do with the song. So the guys were at uh, this mansion, Headley Grange in Hampshire, England, and that's where they were working on the songs. They're out in the country surrounded by woods. This black Labrador retriever would wander around the grounds and the band would feed it and pet it and stuff and hang out with it. So when they came to this track, which they didn't have a title for, they thought of the dog and went with black dog. Works for me. Always has. (laughs) Always has. So John Paul Jones got the idea for this song after hearing Muddy Waters' uh, 1968 album, Electric Mud. So he wanted to try an electric blues with a rolling bass part. 
and uh, he wanted this riff that would be like a linear, linear journey. So it's going to go start somewhere and get somewhere else. They really would write together, but like he would come in, John Paul Jones brought this bit into and started jamming with, um, with Jimmy Page. And then the song started to come together. So the first version was really, really complex. It was in this three sixteenths time. Most most rock and roll is in four four time. So it's like one mm -hmm. two three four one two three four. And then when you get into these weird time signatures and stuff, it gets a lot more jazzy and it's a lot more complicated and harder to play. Mm. And these guys were pretty good musicians. So they, they were going for these weird time signatures, but it got so hard to keep up with it that they, they kind of abandoned that and moved it back to something that was a little bit more simple. Yeah. You know, John Paul Jones was extraordinary. I heard somebody describe him as like the George Harrison of Led Zeppelin. You know, the guy was behind the scenes, but if you watch him play, man, there's nothing he can't play. Literally no, amazing. Yeah. yeah, super, super amazingly talented guy. Oh, and that's why, God. you know, a lot of times people go, oh, he's the bass player. Bass oh, is, and first oh, of all, bass is not easy. Bass is so important to every song. Um, you know, it can be simple, but a really good bass line can make or break a song. And this guy has a, a, a very, very high level of expertise in, yeah. in all sorts of, you know, from keyboards to bass guitars. and guitars and everything. So, you know, I just watched him the other day play mandolin for two minutes. Dude, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something you got to watch this guy play. Yeah. Would just, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm going to give a shout out to John Paul Jones. There you go. The, the <laughs> other guy, the other guys were so huge, just like all the albums. Right. One song made. This guy was a, the backbone, man. Of yeah. Zeppelin. Yeah. And Page and Plank get all the glory. Bob oh, all the glory. Is like the madman, you know, behind yeah. the drums. But but John Paul Jones is is, is very underrated, I think. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I think musicians understand how good he is, but most people think, oh, he's yep. just the guy with the bass in the back. So the um, that acapella section where it's just Robert Plant singing, that was influenced by Fleetwood Mac. And it's basically a copy of the song, Oh Well, which you oh, yeah. probably know. Yep. So that that was before Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks got into the band when Fleetwood Mac was more of a blues band. Yeah. And so that Oh Well, which if you haven't heard it, check it out. It's an amazing, amazing song. But that's where Robert Plant got the idea for that acapella part. And that's how that you know, all came together on Black Dog. So it's amazing that a song that's so heavy, like Black Dog was influenced by, you know, the Fleetwood Mac blues vibe of Oh Well. Yeah, well, the original Fleetwood Mac, check them out. Maybe someday we'll cover one of their albums. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, I would love to dive into those. Peter Green and Jeremy Spencer, two of the greatest guitar players you'll ever listen to. Yeah, good stuff. Great stuff. The other interesting thing about Black Dog is that there's no guitar amps on the solos. So the guitar mm -hmm. solos on, that are in the outro were recorded directly into the console without using an amplifier. And what they did was they took, Jimmy Page took like four layers of his playing, but all run right into the console, which is unusual because yeah. A, most of a guitar's sound comes from the amplifier. So you get different sounds with different guitars, but the big difference is when you switch up your amplifier because that takes the sound that comes from the guitar 
and basically turns it into sound. So when you don't have amps on there, it's interesting that they would go ahead and do it because so much of a sound, a guitar player's sound is defined by the amplifier that they play. The other interesting things, uh, there's uh, quite a few here <laughs> for Black Dog. <laughs> if I say so myself. Yeah, it's a deep, uh, got see, the funny thing is, so, you know, I don't know all this stuff. Obviously, we research a lot of it and I read a lot of we read like interviews with people and, and them talking about when they recorded and stuff. Sure. And sometimes with the more popular songs, there's a lot more material. So you're able to gather up some more information about them. Robert Plant's vocals on this just only took two takes. So, you know, he nailed it right off the bat. This is, I think, Robert Plant at peak voice right here. When they, you know, did this in the early 70s, like 70s through 76 or so is really, really Led Zeppelin's yeah, like yeah. finest hour. Yeah. You know, a very tough voice, very tough pitch to keep up with. He knows it. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's got an amazing range and is a great, great lead vocalist. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this is Robert Plant actually sampled Black Dog on his 80s solo hit, Tall Cool One. So after Led Zeppelin broke up, he had a couple of records that came out. And the one in the 80s was pretty popular and did pretty well. So oh, yeah. he actually, actually sampled his own song. So that may be the first time that's been done. <laughs> and even in the song here, they mentioned Honey Drip. And he had a band called the Honey Drippers. Yeah, exactly. So I, I picked up on that. That's very smart of you. Yeah, listen, that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I'm here. <laughs> All right, let's dive into track number two again. Yeah. Iconic, iconic, <laughs> maybe my, Come no, on. it's not my favorite Led Zeppelin song. It's one of my favorites. Come on. Uh, it's rock and roll. And it starts off with this just amazing, amazing drum intro. So let's kick right in here. Straight ahead blues, right? 12 bar blues riff. And it's boogie woogie. Hear that? A little bit of that in there. So again, I think, you know, since everybody's familiar with these, I'm going to, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'd love to play them all, but <laughs> we have to get to the information as well. Interesting because there is a guest musician on this who kind of drove the song and helped write it. And it's Ian Stewart, the piano player from the Rolling Stones. Oh, there you go. He was, it's interesting how this worked out. So Zeppelin was staying at this mansion in England and they borrowed a mobile recording truck from the Rolling Stones. So because they, nobody in Zeppelin's camp was really super familiar with it, Ian Stewart came along and helped them record because he used to do this kind of technical stuff with the Stones as well. So he's familiar with the recording unit. and. So he's jamming, and this all came out of an Ian Stewart jam. Awesome. 
And you mentioned the blues, you know, this, these guys all grew up with that. You got to remember Jimmy Page, you know, Plant, that's what, that's all they had to listen to. Right? Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Rock, yeah. They were the huge. They're huge the blues guys. Be, well, the rock and roll before them was limited. You know right. what I mean? It really was. So they grew up, they grew up with the blues, which like we say, the blues gave birth and it turned out to be rock and roll. Right. And I think the result of that too, like what I was saying, we could hear like kind of, kind of like that boogie woogie, the 12 bar blues helps. And then you've also, it's got a little bit of jing ding ding to it, you know, that really kind of moves it along. And even oh, though it's yeah. super heavy, you could envision this stripped down and being played on a piano, right? No doubt. And, and it would be amazing. So that was the Ian Stewart and kind of the Rolling Stones influence on, on Led Zeppelin. Big, you know, Stones, huge blues fans, huge. Yeah. So, so they, that's go ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> no, no. After you. No. <laughs> so again, they ran into this thing where they're, they're like overcomplicating things a little bit. And so the original drum riff was almost unplayable. So, <laughs> so this is, this That's is crazy great. to me is yeah. that they write stuff that they can't play, yeah. <laughs> you know, like they're pushing it to the edge, like it, which shows their greatness because they're going ahead and trying to do something that nobody else can do. Right. But it got so bad that like, he couldn't even keep up with it. So he uh, ended up kind of jamming with it a little bit and using uh, the influence of a Little Richard song called Keep a Knockin'. And so that yeah. kind of drove the the oh. original. And, you know, if you a lot, I probably a lot of people are not that familiar with Little Richard because it's back in the 50s. But go and listen to some of those records and oh. and you'll you're really going to be surprised at how good they are. Oh my God. You keep a knocking, but you can't come in. Come on. Little Richard, <laughs> the best. Yeah. The best. So again, these guys, you know, and we see this over and over and over again is that musicians reach back to their influences, the stuff that they listen to, and they always go back to it to be influenced and inspired by it. Well, you know, some of the, some of the bad, you were talking about Muddy Waters, you know, Muddy Waters band, you know, uh, he had Pine Top Perkins played guitar, the best boogie woogie piano player in the history of the world. Yeah. So, you know, this is why their influences were the best of the best. Yeah. But nobody, but nobody knew it back then, except if you were a musician that you were watching the best of the best. Well, like you and I wouldn't have known that. Sure, you know? sure. And it, and it, a lot of it comes from, you know, especially in the 50s, from the segregation mm. and, you know, white people weren't listening to black music. And, and you know, the, the blues guys were, were almost all black. You know, they were right. older black guys for the most part. Sure. Um, but it, that music is amazing, especially Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters is one of my favorites in terms of the blues. Yeah. And you know the guy who brought it around was John Mayall, yeah, and he knew all these guitar players, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, you know. Yeah. He had all these guys, Jimmy Page. They all they all took a turn playing in there, the Yardbirds, you know that kind of thing. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit. Yeah, Go all ahead. those influential bands that that seeded all these other bands, right? Yeah. And it all, cream and it all and, came, yeah. And it all came from the blues to the Yardbirds, you know, playing all the blues music and then everybody getting their wings and going where they had to go. The Clapton's, the Jimmy Pages, the yeah. Jeff Becks. Yeah, exactly. So in this song, Robert Plant wrote the lyrics, of course, which he wrote, you know, all the lyrics pretty much. 
Um, and he said it was a response to the critics who claimed that the previous album, Led Zeppelin III, wasn't really rock and roll. So Led Zeppelin III was more of an acoustic folk album, and Plant wow. wanted to get back out there and show the critics that these guys could still rock. So that was the impetus for the 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 uh, lyrics on this song. Wow. Imagine Zeppelin being accused of not rocking. It's kind yeah, of right. So yeah. and. This is a song where all four band members got writing credits and most of the Zeppelin songs were only credited to Page and Plant in terms of writing. There you go. All right, so let's dive into number three. This is The Battle of Evermore. There you go. Starts off with a mandolin. What a great instrument. Yeah. So this song was uh, written by Jimmy Page on the mandolin, and it was John Paul Jones's mandolin that he wrote it on. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of John Paul Jones. Yeah, just amazing, <coughs> right? It's like medieval, you know, storytelling. So yeah, tough. yeah, it's definitely very, you know, Tolkien-oriented here. This is The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, so Jimmy Page said he, they're there and he saw the mandolin laying there. It wasn't his, it was, uh, John Paul Jones's. So he picked it up and started messing around with it, got some chords together. And he said, basically it just fell out of him from the mandolin. This is a guy yeah. who never played a mandolin, <laughs> picks it up and writes this song, right? It's great. There you go. That's how uh, you become great. <laughs> yeah. 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 So... <laughs> Yeah, here it was a lot of that finger picking, which is is not something that you hear in a lot of hard rock or metal songs. 
Um, but it kind of brought Jimmy Page back to his studio days where he had to do a lot of different types of music. So it wasn't that it wasn't that his finger picking was good, great, you know, is probably better than most because he's Jimmy Page. Yeah. But it's something that he had done in the past with when he's doing a lot of studio work. And when you're in the studio, you play what they tell you to play. So whatever the song is, you, you know, you do it. And that's, that's what his background was. Yeah. Really, really amazing. And when you think about it, we talk about it all the time. We do this inside the album, ladies and gentlemen, put this album on, sit back and listen to the music that's being played by these guys. Sometimes, you, you know, a lot of times we just put it on and we barely can hear it. Sit down. And listen to the album get inside the album it'll blow your mind yeah totally so page said that his finger picking was a cross between pete seeger earl scruggs and total incompetence <laughs> wow Two so again again a genius you know one of all-time great musicians guitar players still feels incompetent you know it's it's crazy funny of all people pete seeger great banjo player yeah. So the uh, the female voice is actually Fairport Convention's Sandy Denny. It's the only female voice that is on any Led Zeppelin recording. And in this song, they're, you know, kind of back and forth and Plant's kind of playing the role of the narrator of the song, describing the events. And Denny's singing the part of the town crier, representing the people in the story. So that was kind of interesting, I thought. Awesome. Andy Johns was the sound engineer on this song. And again, a guy who uh, worked with the Stones and Zeppelin and a lot of the bands of the day. And he said the way it came together, the band was in the mansion. You know, it's an old English mansion. Uh, you know, it's it's almost winter here. It's the, you know, fall. And so it's cold and they're sitting around the fireplace and they're drinking tea. Jimmy, you know, grabs the mandolin and starts playing. And right away, Andy Johns got a microphone and, you know, put a little echo on his mandolin. And before you know it, the whole song just came together, sitting around the fireplace. You know, Robert Plant jumped in and started singing. And it's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. The stories behind these, the development of these classic, classic songs. It's my dream life. <laughs> yeah, right. If you could do that. <laughs> I said it was a dream. Yeah. All right, so let's dive into, again, now here we are at number four. This is, you know, probably the most well-known rock song in all time, maybe other than Freebird. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Freebird! But this one is Stairway to Heaven. And that's John Paul Jones playing a recorder. Nice. 
there's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying the stairway to heaven when she gets there she knows if the stores are all closed with a word she can't get So this is a longer song. It's eight minutes, 8.03, actually. Um, and mm -hmm. when they started coming up with the idea for Stairway, it was early 1970, and they were trying to figure out a way to create a new epic song that would replace Dazed and Confused, which was at the time the centerpiece for their concerts. So Jimmy Page started working on this song at an eight track studio he had installed at his boathouse <laughs> and <laughs> right boathouse. There you go. <laughs> Trying out different sections on the guitar. So he's writing all these kind of different pieces and then putting them together. So by April in 1970, he was telling journalists that the new song might be 15 minutes long. So right from the beginning, he's thinking, okay, there's gonna be section, section, section. This is gonna be dramatic. It was a very conscious effort to, to construct this, right. which is interesting. Sometimes you say, okay, you know, the song just flows out of you. This one, there's a lot more thought and planning that's going into it. Wow. And so he said, you know, it's, it could be 15 minutes long. It's going to build towards this climax and the drums are not coming in until, you know, almost towards the end of the song. So they were touring a lot at that time. So they'd go out on tours where they were touring for over a year, 18 months at a time. And as they're out on the road, he's working on this and then it's starting to all come together. Mostly the entire song was written by Page. Bulk of the chord sequences worked out and then they started recording it. Um, interesting thing too, is that Jimmy Page played the guitar solo on this song using a Fender Telecaster, which he received from Jeff Beck. Nice. So these days, when you think of Jimmy Page, you think of Les Pauls, Gibson Les Pauls and that double neck guitar that he plays on Stairway when yeah. they had played it. Um, but he originally was a, a Telecaster player and the Telecaster is a guitar that like uh, that you see Bruce Springsteen playing, if people are not familiar with the different guitars. And Telecaster is generally thought of as more of a country kind of guitar because it's a little twangy it's got it's a little mm -hmm. more trebly you know the the les pauls have a little bit more oomph to them a little bit more bass they're they're heavier guitars the pickups are different so it's interesting that you know while page has this kind of i'm a gibson les paul guy he really was a, a telecaster guy to start out with yeah great sound for sure yeah, so um, he he put down three different takes of the solo and then just picked the best one to put on the album. 
Um, he Jimmy Page considers Stairway to Heaven that Led Zeppelin's masterpiece. Robert Plant said that he thought it was a wedding song. <laughs> you know, I, I get it. I get it. You know, if you break the song down, like you said, they pieced it together. If you break the song down, there's like three different songs in it, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, so I can see what they're saying. Some parts are slow and dancey. I, so, yeah, and I, I think the other part of it is, Tom, it just got played so much. Dude, you ready? I wrote down here. I had to ask you this. You ready? <laughs> if our brain could pull up the data, right, like a computer, yeah. could you imagine how many times you and I have listened to Stairway to Heaven? Right? Or most people. Yeah. For me, it's going to be tens of thousands because yeah. I I learned the song on guitar, so I had to play along with it for all these years. <laughs> and it's not a super complicated song to play. There's a lot of picking parts in it, but the chords are not super weird. It's a it's a re repeating pattern. Uh, the riff part is super easy. The solo is not like it's not a uh, it's not pyrotechnics. It's right. it's a little quick, but it's not even really fast. So it's it's a relatively easy song for people to learn on guitar if they really practice it. Well, you're um, playing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I could do it, anybody could do it, right? Say no more. <laughs> quick so, picking, fun strumming. Yeah, there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> so Plant's favorite Zeppelin song is actually Cashmere. Okay. And after the band broke up in 1980, Plant refused to sing Stairway to Heaven except on very rare occasions, uh, including Live Aid, which is the first time in, I guess, was that 85, 86, that, uh, or 85, I think it was for Live Aid. But that was the first time Led Zeppelin played together after Bonham's death. Right. So they came out and I was there actually in Philadelphia and saw them and they did Stairway and they did all their, you know, greatest hits. It was, it was an amazing show. Just one, who was that, Kenny Jones? Did he play drums then? uh they had uh phil collins and oh, okay. another gotcha. drummer i forget the other guy but they had two drummers playing on it oh cool and uh so it was good uh it was really amazing people were really excited because zeppelin had been gone for you yeah. know five years and now they were back and it was you know it was the end of a long day in the sun so um that was uh a great great Absence performance makes the hawk grow fonder you know yeah always, for sure yeah you know what? Plant kind of soured, you know, through the years on Zeppelin. You know, he he was one of the guys that always refused getting the band back together. Yeah, I you know what? I I always think about this, and I, I think it was kind of I think his attitude is kind of like that was then, and it's been done, and he didn't want to go back to it. I got to give him credit there. I agree with you. He was the kind of guy that wanted to always do something different and new, and 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 that's fine. And, and another reason I think it's, you know, it, it was like a young man's world, his voice, you know, it drops, it drops yeah. an octave, you know, he, yeah. he's way, it's tough to get to throughout. Yeah. The that, especially as you get older, you know, yeah. when you're 23, 24 and you're a singer, your voice is, you know, you're like Mariah Carey. You're, yeah, you're, you're, rocking, you're, you're rocking it. Yeah. And some of this Zeppelin stuff was very, oh. very taxing vocally. Yeah, no doubt. I think that had a big challenge for Zeppelin through the years. You know, like Van Halen, same thing. David Lee Roth, you know, as a kid. Yeah, you're not going to hit those carried. notes. Right. No, you're not going to hit those notes. Exactly. Yeah. And there was an interview that uh, Plant did with Dan Rather in 2018. And he said, was talking about this exact subject. And he said, yep. he said, you know, 
he, he said it's it, talking about stairway to heaven it belongs to a particular time if i had been involved in the instrumentation i would feel that it's a magnificent piece of music that has its own character and personality it even speeds up in a similar way to some pieces of more highbrow music but his contribution was to write the lyrics and sing it and so maybe he feels a little like disconnected to it but he also said it was coming out of the mind of a 23 year old and so again we're you know we're back to what you were just saying you know so i think it's just a mix of that that he maybe wasn't as connected to it because it was mostly jimmy page's song Uh, and again if we've heard it that many times i think when you're that iconic and you're playing that much that you know, you could wear anything out. You know, you can yeah. think about, oh, the people want to hear this, right? But the bottom, bottom line is you're going, I don't want to play this. I don't want to sing this. I right. can fully understand that from a, you know, from a fan's point of view, you're like, no, you, you know, I, I, I'll give you a quick story why why I went to see uh, the Kinks, uh, Ray Davies, uh-huh. you know, and I'm psyched. I bring my, my family, I bring my daughters, I bring my kids, I bring my sisters. I'm like, oh my God, it's Ray Davies. And Ray Davies gets up there, he's going, yeah, here's a song that was like, you know, a song I put on the album. And he played every obscure song he ever recorded in the history <laughs> of rock and roll. Didn't do Lola, didn't do anything. Yeah, I, I, you know, I get that from these guys' perspective, but that's such right. a bad thing to do to the fans. I'm not saying that you have, back. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying you have to do a greatest hit show all the time. Right. You know, there are a lot of there. Well, there aren't too many bands that don't. But uh, I think you still have to, you know, you got to give them give them what they're expecting. You know, throw, throw me an ape man. Come on. I need an ape man. Yeah, right. Come on. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and but plants thing, I totally get it that that was so in the past and that, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of issues that were going on with Zeppelin back in the day with, you know, they had all those issues didn't uh, plant lost his son, wasn't it? Uh, there was a death and a car accident sure. or something. I forget the exact uh. details. But, you know, when, when that all came to an end, I guess they figured, wow, you know, we were doing this for 15, you know, 12, 15 years. And now it's time to move on to something different. Yeah, I can. I, I get it. And especially in the creative world, man, you know, creative, you know, staying creative, staying in a creative, creative mode, mindset, that kind of thing. Sometimes when you step away, you become creative again. And yeah. he did some he did some great music. Oh, yeah. Plant later on. I like a lot of his solo stuff. Yeah, truth. yeah. But it's right. also, you know, it's, uh, hey, don't want to live in the past. That's a personal thing. And, and it was just not for him. So there you go. All right, let's dive into number five. This is Misty Mountain Hop. A beauty. Come on, come on now. Great riff, right? Yeah, great riff. I love riffs. There's that voice right there talking about. Yeah. Tremendous.
So this song was written by Jimmy Page one night when the rest of the band was sleeping. <laughs> nice. You guys sleep. I'll take care of this. Yeah. <laughs> so Plant said it's a it's about a loving. So it's you know these hippie kids out in the park. Uh, it was this thing that's happening near London, and 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 the cops broke it up. And so Plant said it's about a bunch of hippies getting busted about the problems you come across when you have a simple walk in the park on a nice Sunday afternoon, sunny afternoon. Uh, and he said in England, they felt like it was like Big Brother, like they're coming out to, you know, and this is kind of the hippies versus everybody else in society and well, trying to do their whole free love and all this crazy stuff. And, you know, that uh, a lot of times there was conflict back then. Hey, free love is important. Come on. <laughs> I want to say this. We were talking about the blues and, you know, the influence they had. Take this song, slow it down, slow the riff down, slow the song down. Pure blues. Oh yeah, bam, 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 bam. just slow yeah. that down to bam, 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 bam. You know, just it's amazing when you hear it. They just sped up the blues on this song. It's yeah, great stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, and like you said, that's this is it's blues is such a big, big influence on these guys. All these British bands were influenced by the American blues bands, the uh, blues wow. guys. Some of them say thank you. Some do, yeah. Some do. <laughs> Some don't. <laughs> That's a story for another day. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's take a listen to uh, track number six. This is Four Sticks. great song i think people mm. are real familiar with this gets its name because bonham actually played this with four drumsticks wow it's crazy because this guy yeah. used big beefy drumsticks not like oh. like little you know sometimes you see these very thin drumsticks oh, no, no. this guy's using pounders and he's using two in each hand literally just pounding away just yeah crazy but the problem is that it, it beats the crap out of your hands you know and so it was very they could only do this a couple of times yeah um it, in fact it was so hard for them to record it uh that they've only played it once live oh wow yeah that's a so, great tidbit yeah yeah there's also some analog synth on there which is you know i mean zeppelin is known for a little bit of keyboard not too much uh, but they did a lot of overdubs here with heavy vocals, processing on them, and a lot of electronic sounds added to the to the vocals. So um, yeah, a much different sound for Led Zeppelin, you know, kind of moody, I think, right? Well, moody, and, you know, it's kind of like, uh, 
it's kind of like the drums are being played like a Congo beat. Like, like if you were yeah. playing a, if you were like playing a bongo drum, bum, 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 bum. Right. Right. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of a jungle feel. Yeah. Right. The it really, it really is. is. Kind of boom. It's kind of like George in the jungle. Sort of. It was, it was taking me back. There's a, the, the New York dolls have a song called meanwhile back in the jungle. And it's like the boom, boom, boom. It's like, it's got that same jungle beat. So yeah, yeah really, really cool. It's a different way, a different approach for Zeppelin for sure. Yeah. So when they were doing this, so they're trying to lay down this song and Bonham was getting really frustrated with it, but it led him to a breakdown. So he chugs a beer and he blasted out a riff that was patterned after Keep a Knockin', which we talked about before. Yeah. And it actually turned into rock and roll. So while they were writing Four Sticks and he's working on this crazy drum thing, he's having a lot of trouble with it. But it creates this other great song as well. So it's it's insane how how this how these guys just produce these amazing amazing songs. Yeah, pieces of this, pieces of that. It all comes together. And like we always say, I'll bring it up right now. Listen, no matter how you look at it, it's rock and roll for sure. Right? It came from somewhere, and you know, and we we didn't even discuss it. The fact with the the riff from Stairway to Heaven had caused Zeppelin so much grief. Yeah, going to court and yuck. Right, crazy. Keith Richards says it best. There's only a few notes and a few chords. Yeah, <laughs> right. You can only put them in so many different ways. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, 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 the whole rock and roll coming out of Four Sticks is interesting. And then they made Four Sticks the B-side of the rock and roll single. There so you like the two songs in which, you know, you don't think about them together, but they're really wow. kind of like Siamese twins almost in a way, you know, could join. I got and, it. And yeah. Like so they were created this, in a laboratory. Yeah, the same piece of music, pretty much. Wow. Uh, I love when you say B-sides, you know? It's like uh, anybody younger and listening, it's like there used to be an A-side, which they thought right. would be the hit, and then the B-side, which was the song. Most of the time, they would throw in just to cover the other side of the, the right. 45, right? Just yeah, they never first. used the good songs because the single was the one, the A-side was the one that got played on that the That they wanted to sell, and, right. Yeah, and drove the sales of the singles and, and then the albums as well. And and you realize soon after that many, many B-sides turned out to be the greatest songs ever. Well, and it just goes to show you that even sometimes the artists, all the people around them, you know, they know their business and stuff, but sometimes they, who knows which song is going to be the most popular one. Oh, yeah. I got gotcha. you. All right. All right. Let's move on. Number seven is uh, going to California. What can you say? It's just so good. Ah. Spend my days with a woman and kind. Smoke my stuff and drink all my wine. So that line right there uh, kind of tells you where this song comes from, and it's about basically Joni Mitchell. Oh, wow. So it's inspired by Joni Mitchell. 
um, Plant and Paige were both huge fans of her and her singing, and she's the you know the hippie girl with the flower in her hair. And oh, this yeah. goes back to that time that we've talked about before with that Laurel Canyon scene. Yeah, she know? was fabulous. And yeah, and she was kind of the center of that, right? She was like a spoke to a lot of different people. And oh, absolutely. And so, um, you know, they were writing this about California, and then it, it, it became this real kind of Joni Mitchell feel to it, which it kind of has a little bit of that Joni Mitchell, the, you know, uh, the way the, the lyrics are, are super lyrical, for lack of a better word. Nice. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And the music was quite musical. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> but it's very, you know, it's very kind of laid back in that Joni Mitchell, and, and some of the phrasing is even a little Joni Mitchell-esque in terms of the, in terms of his phrasing on, on some of those lines. Well, just before that, you know, the 60s, straight through, the folk music was huge. That's why they mentioned even Pete Seeger. Right. You know, the folk music, the New York City, San Francisco, folk music was huge. Yeah, because that was the thing that was breaking new ground at that time. Yeah, that was awesome. And Great so, stuff. Yeah, yep. it always catches people's ears and eyes. And again, here's an acoustic song with no drums. There's no John Bonham on this song at all. Uh, Jimmy Page played two different guitars on the track, a 12 string and a six string. And then again, you hear that mandolin in there, and that's John Paul Jones on the mandolin. So again, back to, you know, that same kind of crossover of different instruments, some layering and, and different things going on there. And, yeah. You, you know, know what a really, what a band. Yeah. Just, and just a great musicianship, song. musicianship, just amazing. You know, I, again, yeah, shout out yeah. to John Paul Jones. <laughs> yeah. To be able to pick up instruments like that and just and be so good at them is, is just an amazing. Super amazing talent. talent. All right, so the final song, the closer, number eight, and this is one of my all-time favorites, um, and it is When the Levy Breaks. Well, go ahead. Well, When the Levy Breaks might be my all-time favorite. What a great, great song. Yeah. Can't wait to hear it. Sometime today. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the drums again. Yeah, yeah, everything about it. So uh, 
this song has that super long intro part. Uh, the song itself is seven minutes, nine seconds. Wow. That, that intro wow. with the drums, just with the drums and the harmonica and stuff is uh, uh, over a minute long. So that's interesting. Yeah. You know, and again, like we talked, all these songs had to be cut down for the radio, even when they butcher up Stay Away to Heaven. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they cut out like the whole section. Nah, I know. It's ridiculous. Wow. Uh, yeah. Right? So this. This is a cover song. It's from an old blues song that was recorded by Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy back in 1929. <laughs> I guess you got your name from where you lived. I guess, yes. Uh, and it, it's based on the Great Mississippi Flood. So Memphis Minnie. Oh, no, Memphis is Tennessee. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so there was a flood in 27, 1927, and there were slave, uh, or I guess, with it. Yeah, there were still slaves at that point. No, 1927. Uh, so it was African-American plantation workers were forced to uh, work on the levee at gunpoint, piling the sandbags and saving the neighboring town. And uh, so that's where you get some of the lyrics, like, I work on the levee, mama, both night and day, I work so hard to keep the water away. You know, so it's coming from a historical real fact. Yeah. And you really, it's Black History Month, and you were like, was there still slavery in 1926? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm awful with this. <laughs> well, I, I meant, uh, I'll help you out. In Mississippi, probably. Yeah, right? <laughs> Close to it, I'm sure. Now, uh, please, that is not an outtake. <laughs> <laughs> so, my favorite thing about this is the drums, just uh, amazing. And they recorded this, they had them sit. Uh, put the drums in the lobby of the, the mansion and they hung the microphones over the stairs. So over the banister, over, over this uh, lobby area. And so you get this giant big echo sound because it's this nice big space. Awesome. And uh, you know, that that's kind of, for a lot of drummers, that sound is like the, the Holy grail. Like that's what they, you know, are trying to get to, but, but it's very hard to reproduce that without the dynamics and acoustics, acoustics. of that particular Yeah. Room. Yeah. A lot of foyers and places like that, you know, back in the day, hotel places like that, big, huge foyers, great sound, great acoustics, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so we talked about, you know, it's a little bit of a, you know, the, it's based on this historic thing. There, but there's another aspect of this is uh, Jimmy Page did this backward echo technique on the harmonica. So you actually, with the harmonica, that's why if you listen to the harmonica closely, it sounds off. It sounds a little weird. And yeah. it's because you're hearing the echo before the sound. So a crazy, crazy effect, but it really kind of stands out and makes that harmonica sound just so much different. Uh, it, I was trying, if you really try to figure it out, it sounds like a harmonica, yet it doesn't. Exactly. Right. So right. something went on there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so these guys are really kind of pushing the limits in terms of, of trying to, you know, do some interesting new things with sounds. Thank God. Uh, they, they did a lot of effects on the vocals for different verses, had different types of effects. And so those types of all these types of things that were going on in this song made it really hard for them to perform this live. And it was only played to live twice. Wow. Crazy because it's such a good song. Yeah. You know what? I, I guess it was that difficult, but they could have brought it down to a different level, a different, you know, style or version. Yeah. You know? I think, you know, the thing was they, they felt like when they did it live, it didn't come close to the recording. Yeah. And yep. so, that's why they stayed away from it. 
Yeah. Um, but the other interesting thing is that this sound, like we talked about that, like where I said it's the kind of the holy grail of the drum sound, it mm -hmm. also became a really uh, heavily sampled drum sound for the rap in the 80s. So nice. you'll hear it on the Beastie Boys, Rhyming and Stealing, which is the first song off of License to Ill. Uh, it was used by Dr. Dre on Lyrical Gang Bang and countless others. Wow. So definitely has some legs. And, you know, even like we said before, Robert Plant was sampling Led Zeppelin in the 80s. So <laughs> hey, he was alone. That's great. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Think about it again. We always talk about this, man. These albums that we're diving into, you know, and talking about, these are meant to be listened to, you know, and I mean that. Take the time to listen to it. You know, break away from everything. You know, put the music on. You know, when the levee breaks, you know, if you, my God, musically, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I love everything about it. Great song to have cranked up or with headphones. No, just no doubt. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Crank it up. All right. And so that's Led Zeppelin 4. Wow. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Keep listening. Give us a review on Apple if you can. And next week, Tom, we're going to do, uh, we're going to go inside the album Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Wow. Wow. So, oh, well, there's some stories there. There's oh, some yeah. stories so there. We're going to change it up. Amazing, amazing album. And, you know, we keep running across people who have Beach Boys' as influences, too. You know, you hear oh. that a lot. And so uh, I don't know if people today realize how uh, how powerful the Beach Boys were back in, in the uh, back in the day. Well, especially when it came to producing music. It changed yeah. the world. That album changed the world. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to it, Donnie boy. All right. Or should I call listening. you uh, a pack on Don? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Where do you live? Landing. Oh, all right. <laughs> so you'll be, we're going to give ourselves Mississippi names. You'll be oh, landing. Miss, Don. Uh, miss, I was like, where are you going for there? <laughs> landing Don. Hey, listen, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> leave me alone. Will you come on? Howdy, boy. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. All right. Tell your friends. Bye.